Good evening. Does this sound okay? Good. I think I may have shared with you, I'm, I've had glasses for three days, so this is the first time I get to sit in front of a room and clean my glasses. And the first time I try to read with them as well, like in front of people, so. Hmm. Brand new moment. Hmm. Our teachers, uh, they assure us that the mind is bright, radiant, pure, and is obscured by visiting tendencies of the mind. It sounds so impersonal. Just visiting tendencies of mind. Not a problem, right? Have you come into any obscuration? Yeah? There's some visiting tendencies of the mind? Yeah. They come almost immediately, these hindrances. And that's what I want to talk about because they're so common in our practice. So what are they a hindrance to? They're a hindrance to clear seeing and understanding. Yeah. And so the five are desires for sense pleasure, aversion, which is a kind of a refusing of reality, Sloth or tiredness, or actually I skipped one, aversion. I'm actually very averse to that. Um, Sloth, tiredness, restlessness and agitation are number four. And then five is doubt, maybe the most powerful of all. Yeah. And... We can see them as habits of the mind, these well-worn patterns. I think I was mentioning the paradox of we turn inward to practice, but we also see what we've been practicing. So um, we're always practicing something. So my pitch is going to be here tonight, is going to be not trying to get rid of them, even though they're pretty unpleasant that there's a value there in uh, the exploration of them. So the whole talk will be trying to convince you to not push them away when thousands of years of biology are demanding that you do so. So I know what I'm up against, but we we got a good chance. We got a good shot here. Hmm. So what happens when the Dharma lens is obscured when we can't see clearly because of one of these visiting tendencies. They can really deliver us into living under under the yoke of the defilements, right? Greed, anger, and delusion. So that can have a real negative impact on our whole experience. It can like overlay everything that we're seeing because maybe we're not clear on what we're under the influence of. 
And so if I was sick, right, I, I might start feeling terrible. But maybe I don't know that I'm sick. And so I don't know how to respond wisely. I'm just like, this sucks. I hate this feeling. But without the recognition of what it is, it's really difficult to work with that. Once I know, then it's like, oh, stay in bed, drink soup. You know, I know how to take care of myself. So the first part of working with these hindrances is acknowledging their presence and knowing, what is this? What is this feeling that I'm, this energy that's moving through me? The Dharma assures us that all conditions, any <coughs> circumstance, can lead to awakening. It's such a radical statement. And if we, if we believe that, then that must be true in this arena as well, in this realm of the hindrances. Naturally, we constrict when these hindrances arise. And we spend a bunch of our energy um, trying to push them away or manage or control or fix them. I think this is a very normal response, a very natural response. To really try to, uh, it's strong, but to push them out of existence, because I really think that they are the problem. I was happy and free, and then the hindrance came along and messed my whole meditation up. Anybody? Yeah, it's wild, right? Yeah. Hmm. But the way our brains are organized, I haven't used my glasses yet because I'm afraid to kind of, it's a bifocal situation and I, I'm going to be that dude, you know? So I'm basically just trying to remember what I wrote. Wow. There's just a lot of compassion for folks that wear glasses this whole time. They've been wearing glasses. <laughs> so the way our brains are organized, uh, you could say that, when I say that we're always practicing something, <clears throat> they know that um, when the neurons in our brain fire together, like in a certain sequence, then they wire together, right? Um, so these patterns that I'm talking about, um, they might be the very ground that we feel like we're standing on, like, I'm going to resist this. I'm supposed to abandon this. This is not wholesome, right? So it gets rather confusing um, for me. Uh, and in our natural reaction, kind of makes things worse, right? When we cut off, 
when we push away. When we cut off, we also cut off from the compassion that might arise if we actually tend to it with care, right? And I want to say this unequivocally. We come by it all so honestly. We're all doing our best. And in some way, a lot of us make it our fault when these things arise or when, when they don't go away. You know, we could think the practice ain't working or I'm not going to be able to do it or this is not the right this is not the right thing for me. So I just want to say that uh, all of that, we come by it so honestly and it's not our fault. Mm. I heard Brian last night, he kept using this word. He kept talking about all of these different things and would just say, interesting. Did you notice that, that he used that word? That's because he's interested in those things. Those things are not interesting in and of themselves. <laughs> so we're looking for a willingness, like a curiosity, right? That has to be there. A willingness to engage these energies and find out, actually, what are you? What is this constellation of feelings I'm calling restlessness or sleepiness or any of them? When seen through the dharmic lens, these same exact energies can be sources of insight and wisdom. Imagine, the things that we've been pushing away can be the sources of insight and wisdom. Hmm. So if we, if we buy into this idea that all conditions, any circumstance can lead to our awakening, then we have to let in the re very real possibility that whatever we think is in the way, is the way. And it sounds so cliche. It sounds like a bumper sticker, you know? I have found it to be true. And when I orient things, orient toward things like they're obstacles, they are. And when I orient toward things like they're doorways, they become them. The power of belief is so strong. We get to shape and create our experience. We'll be sitting there minding our own business and something will arise. And so the first thing is how do we orient toward the indicator light is blinking. It's calling for my attention. What's a helpful attitude or quality? So I think curiosity, I think willingness. Those are some of the things that help me investigate. I look back on my practice and the things that were the most challenging are the things I learned the most from, right? Like. Think about it in your own life, you know, throughout your life, not even just your Dharma path. The things that were the hardest in our lives, they gave us the biggest gifts. They taught us the deepest lessons. And yet, we're just about ungrateful to these teachers. 
right? Like I push away difficulty. Still, even knowing that, right? So we're trying to break a very deep pattern here. Mm. The places that are easy for me, I, I don't learn that much from. The places that I, where I can feel the, the alchemy of presence, right? And what I mean is when we bring our care and attention to the places that are difficult, usually the payoff is big. But we have to have the willingness to be intimate with them not just abandon them, not just push them away, because we have to see and understand their nature. And I find this whole exploration much easier when love is present. When love is present, I find that anything is possible. We see mothers picking up their cars to get their baby out. Because when love is present, anything is possible. So, so keep in mind, uh, we're doing this with as much heart as possible. As we open up to what's difficult, we also open up to its understanding as we open up to its understanding, we can come into right relationship with it. When I heard that phrase, you know, that the mind, there's a natural radiance of the unobscured heart, right? That's what I heard. I thought that meant it wasn't going to be a lot of work. I was really hoping because I'm a lazy person. You know, I was like, oh, there's a natural radiance. Just hang back. <laughs> you know, put me down for two. <laughs> I like that idea. But there's effort involved. There's work. Mm -hmm. So, let's go down the list. We'll start with sense desire sense pleasure. Ironically, a place that has brought so many of us so much suffering, just wanting to feel good, just wanting pleasurable all the time. That's, that's my understanding of it. I thought it was a constant onslaught of pleasurable feelings that led me to Narcotics Anonymous because that's, a, that's not sustainable. Nothing could continue to deliver in that way. So, wanting that is a very powerful habit. And it's and the natural energy of this realm. Uh, desire gets contracted into craving, idealization, and even like a some uh, like identification, it's very essentialized. You know, it becomes our whole world where it's like, I want what I want and I don't care what the price is. You ever had that feeling? Yeah. Yeah, so it's a tunnel vision and everything else falls away. And I think that I just have to close the gap 
between me and what I want. That's the problem, the gap. That if I get it, I won't want any more. How many times have you made that deal? <laughs> you know, whether it was a relationship or a job or a whatever. It was not quite as real as advertised. It didn't deliver, not for long anyway. So wanting is endless. And so understanding craving becomes part of our practice when the presence of craving is there. And I don't want to like conflate pleasure with sense pleasure or desire because pleasure can be nourishing. There can be spiritual pleasure, right? That can be really uh, healthy and the desire that can be wholesome. And then there's the pleasure that I've been talking about, which never satisfies. Someone, uh, a teacher said, (laughs) he said, wanting a positive experience is a negative experience. And accepting a negative experience is a positive experience. It really stopped me in my tracks. I really get that viscerally. This wanting. And I think when it comes to these sense pleasures, what we're really experiencing, what actually satisfies, is the end of wanting. Wanting has ceased, and there's some satisfaction in that. So not the thing but the state that that thing had me in. So when I'm filled with those feelings, it's good to discern, is this a wholesome desire? Or is there a sense of contraction in it? And the best place that I've found to to make that decision is in my body, in my breath. The breath doesn't really lie so much. I can feel myself holding my breath. I can feel the body just tightening around what it wants, like, like it's almost cl- yeah, the sense of clinging to it. So we could sense the presence of the hindrance and not be fixated on it, not lost in a dream about it. Um, What's being called for is to try to stay open and relaxed. And in this way we can, you know, feel the presence of healthy desire. So the invitation is to check the felt sense of an experience and check your breathing. We know whether we're contracted or not. It's a a very uh, palpable feeling. So when you're trying to discern, 
between the different kinds of desire. Check the body and see what actually arises and what passes. The list of hindrances that I read, a bunch of things that I would like to abandon. Aversion, sleep, restlessness, doubt, even desire, they can all be seen through the lens of avoidance. So there has to be a real interest in understanding what are we turning away from here? And every one of these could be its own talk. So I'll touch on them uh, briefly and it'll be a bit incomplete. So we move on down the list to aversion. They say of the, there's three Buddhist types, greed type, aversive types, and deluded types. I am firmly aversive, aggressively so. I really don't like that title. <laughs> I don't like that label. We could even have aversion to aversion, which can just feel exhausting. But again, the definition is to turn away. And most of us would agree, there's a lot of things we should turn away from, right? We do abandon the unwholesome. But how do we know what's supportive and what's healthy? Do we know the difference? Damn straight we do. We do. We know. We may not want to know. We may lie to ourselves a little bit about it. It's like, no, no, it's mostly wholesome. You know what I mean? There might be a little something in there, but between me and you, it's wholesome. So we could like run game down on ourselves, but we always know. I always know. And we live, uh, for the, us aversive types, in a very irritating realm. You know, nothing is ever quite right for the, for the av- people with aversion. Right? That kind of Goldilocks, like, it's a little too warm, a little too cold, not quite right. It, you know, this is a beautiful room. If you don't mind the ceiling. You know what I mean? It's just like that. It's just like, oh, God. It's just, Really? I can turn this moment into suffering in one moment. (laughs) Wild. Mm. So there's lots of opportunities to work with aversion. Mm. 
Now, how do we relate to its presence? You know, it can lead to agitation. And, and then we get to decide, we get to know, what is this thing I'm labeling agitation? My experience is, I have an experience and then I make up a story about it and then I refer back to the story I made up about it. Because the stories are very compelling. I'm not used to going into my body and where does this live and does it move, how does it change? That takes some practice. So. We have to be willing to let go of the story about it and actually check into the direct experience of it. Yeah. What might I have to feel if I wasn't lost in the story? Hmm. So we move down the list to sloth and tiredness. They say that sloths move so slow that they're actually moth colonies that live on the animal. That's crazy. <laughs> That's really slow. I'm, I'm super slow moving, but nothing is living on me. Like a <laughs> colony of moths that just live on a sloth. That, that's going to come up later. I'll ask you about it. <laughs> but I do reside in kind of a, the lazier part of the cosmos. You know, like my energy is low, generally. And so how am I with that reality? You know, and, and is that different than the heavy weight of avoidance? Right? Sometimes when we come on retreat, we're coming from a very stimulating world. <laughs> you know, a lot of stuff coming at us. Like, yeah, I heard a thing where they were talking about, uh, they said, like one page in the New York Times was, you know, the same amount of information as a person would have had in their whole life a hundred years ago, right? And so here, here we are taking in a lot of information. And then we step out of that world and into retreat. And this is about as unstimulating as you could get, right? I mean, how many times are you going to read about ticks? And, <laughs> huh? my, me- my, my meeting is still at 9.30, okay. Back to the shampoo bottles, you know what I mean? Oh, God. So when we come here, it's like a, there can be like an energetic collapse. Or you're just like, oh, I'm exhausted, right? Because we're not being stimulated externally for maybe the first time in a while. So there's a bit of like catch-up. The heaviness that can come with this, uh, the tiredness that I'm talking about, um, 
the way I understand it is the, the mind has two functions. It has doing and knowing. And the way of meditation is to calm the doing while maintaining the knowing. Sleepiness occurs when carelessly we calm both the doing and the, and the knowing. And we're unable to distinguish between the two. That's the kind of heaviness I'm talking about. So it's not just a tiredness. There's a, there's a quality of avoidance. In our culture, it's like we worship energy. You know, remember when all the energy drinks came out like 15 years ago? It was wild. Like I, was, I knew people that were drinking like three of those a day. Like the Red Bulls, you know, I was a construction worker. And I wanted to make like a big cross out of Red Bull cans. Because it was just like people are just amped up and they love it. And something about our culture, it's like, The last thing any of us want to be told is you look tired, right? It's like, oh, thanks, I've been working on that. <laughs> thanks for noticing. No, I'm glad it's paying off. <sighs> but every time we find, every time we challenge that, that sleepiness, that tiredness, Every time we don't succumb to it, we weaken the conditioning that says that we should. And, and usually we're rewarded and we find the energy. Most of it's just showing up and not believing the whispers. Yeah. Hmm. I think it's interesting that in the Pali language, the word for energy is varia. Translated, uh, it also means courage, which is interesting because it takes so much courage to be present. Yeah. Next up is restlessness and agitation. So we want energy, but not too much, right? The rhythm of our culture, like I said, Keep it moving, right? From Netflix to Amazon Prime, they are waiting on hold right now for your call, right? Like 24-hour, just on-demand lives. And so there's not a lot of stopping because we don't ever have to stop anymore. I heard one teacher talk about it, and he tried to encapsulate what he did with his students. And he was like, you know, it's basically like I'm jogging next to them as they're running and I'm just telling I'm assuring them that they could stop and they keep assuring me that they're going to stop right around the next bend so they're like jogging next to someone and saying it's okay to stop A lot of us get a, a lot of our worth from our busyness. People ask us how we are, and we tell them everything we've been doing. <laughs> 
Yeah? So again, the culture kind of supports this kind of nonstop life. Again, drive doesn't have to be unnourishing or unwholesome. It's just when there's a compulsive aspect to it, then we can know it for what it is. And uh, when I look under the hood of a lot of the ways I was moving in the world, I was looking for something to fulfill me, right? I had meaning because I was being of service. And there was something wholesome about it and then something that felt compulsive about it. So we, again, get to discern There's a lot of energy and restlessness. And it actually may arise from too much space. Sometimes, you know, we're practicing, and I like to, I understand the practice as a resting in kind awareness. That's how I like to frame it, and that's what it feels like for me. But sometimes there can, it can become lax, and instead of kind awareness, it's kind of awareness, right? It's just kind of like, you know, lightweight awareness. And there's a cost to that. And the restlessness can arise because there's too much space. There's not enough kind of paying attention and being, uh, tending to things with care. So sometimes the restlessness needs a little bit more mindfulness, a little bit more diligence. Agitation That comes usually from bearing down too hard on our experience. Again, we're, we're looking for the middle path. So we move to the last one. Doubt. Yeah, they say it's the most powerful because it can disguise itself as anything. You know, it camouflages as wisdom. You know, it can come as compassion, right? You've been sitting so much. Maybe just skip a session or two. You know, you deserve it. These people are busy talking about self-love. Go love yourself. Anybody have that thought, right? It's just doubt. It's like, yeah, I'm not really sure. There can be a feeling of lost in it, too. It comes with authority. Um, at least for me, it does. So it can be hard to discern or identify. But self-study is a study of seeing when we get caught. Right? When I cling and I find myself clinging many, many times a day. And it's just a catch and release. It's just like, oh, that's right. I can feel the contraction in the body. As Soon as I go into my body, I'm like, oh, wow. What do I have to let go of in order to be free right now? 
And usually there's some belief sponsoring that tightness, that contraction. Sometimes just noting, uh, Brian was uh, introducing us to the noting practice this morning, just gently noting what's arising. And when we do that with the hindrances, it's basically like an early detection system, because the earlier we know what we're under the influence of, the better. So the noting practice can help us by seeing, oh, the hindrances are present. Or, the hindrances are not present. Thich Nhat Hanh, um, that beautiful soul, he, he said so many wonderful things. Two of them stick out to me in this moment. He said, things are as they are, and we suffer or suffering arises because we imagined them differently. Could it be that simple? Hmm. He also has a meditation that's called, I don't have a toothache. <laughs> you know how a, a toothache can be a really immersive experience? Like it's your whole world? and you would do anything to stop it, knowing its absence. I think that's beautiful. So how do we know things' presence, and how do we know their absence? And we don't want to mistake not knowing for doubt. This is a very different. There's a healthy place of not knowing or not being so certain that's, that's open and present. And if we know too much, well, many of us know that shadow. So doubt can be really debilitating. Mm, you know, I, I can't do this right. I'll never get it. I'm not even sure what I'm supposed to be doing. All those kind of thoughts. Um, and that's all they are, right? Doubt is just a thought. When noticed, hardly any power. Oh, thought, not a problem. When unnoticed, can wreak havoc in our lives, can actually take us off the path, because we believe it. They use the term, plagued by doubt. That's the only word that they use that with, right? You're not plagued with anything else. But some of us are plagued with doubt from time to time. So how do we pay more attention to our direct experience of the body when the mind is not offering up anything that's helpful? Right? That takes some discernment when we say, wow, this is just a mess up here. Can I direct my awareness to a different domain, like my feet on this floor? like my body in this chair. Is my belly open and spacious? How is my heart? 
right? So we don't have to feel hijacked by the mind because it seems like it's the only game in town, busy trying to figure everything out. But we do have a choice of where we place our attention. And that is a really valuable tool that we learn here. So we get to see our tendencies, whether we get irritated all the time, whether we want to go to sleep all the time, whether there's the, we eat to avoid sometimes, or we use desire, or some other tendency. So usually it's like, whatever one you, you really didn't like what I said about it, that might be yours. It might be the one that wants to be worked with. So we start with acknowledging that the, this energy has arisen. There's restlessness. Okay. What does that mean? Because it's important to know uh, recognition and naming is not mindfulness. <laughs> it's just a tool that we use. I could be aware of my anger is arising. doesn't mean I'm being mindful of it. So awareness is not enough. It has to be in the service of wisdom. So, and I guess the main distinction with mindfulness is there's got to be acceptance, not just recognition. So without it, without attachment, without aversion, acceptance. And then, through wisdom, through mindfulness, we see its impermanent nature, we see its characteristics, we could know it. But we have to let them touch us a little bit. That doesn't mean being ensnared by them. It means consciously, where is that living in me? Can I tend to these feelings? Usually I can tend to the sensations. It's the stories that are unbearable. That which knows doubt is not doubt. It's wisdom. That's what knows in us. The part of us that knows, man, I'm really foggy. It's not foggy at all. Right? So there's a wisdom aspect that's always in play. I know that the main message from the mind, as soon as they arise, something's wrong. It's not working. I don't like this. Then we cut off. I saw a bumper sticker that said, I stopped for the hindrances. Because <laughs> that's what they're asking us to do. The indicator light is blinking. It's like there's something here to check out. So we have to find the willingness, get interested in it. How does it operate? What are its characteristics? from the inside, not to get lost in the content, 
but rest in the direct experience of knowing it. We're so conditioned to believe that when we see a problem, we must immediately fix it. This is Red Hawk. One of the most difficult things is to observe without interference, not judging or changing what is observed. Lay down your sword and cease fighting, weary traveler. The fight is the trap. So we don't engage it with that kind of energy. We don't want to waste any of our suffering. Mm. Whatever's unfolding in the moment is the path. And for whatever reason, if I can't tend to it, try to not make it any worse. Yeah. Hmm. Now one minute recap. Identify the experience. What is this? Not just noting it, but allowing yourself to touch it a little bit. Connect and sustain and watch what happens next. And see if there's an underlying, underlying commonality around what am I avoiding. You won't have to conjure these energies up. They come all by themselves. And there's no real avoidance anyway. The only choice we have is whether we're relating to them or from them. I'll end with the words of John Donoghue, who said, May there be kindness in your gaze when you look within. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.